It's always been the main aim of this series to look at the bigger picture, supply networks, global politics, economic butterfly effects. In talking about these grand systems and at times distant political decisions, it's inevitable that the personal impact and the impact on Ukrainians can be lost. In this episode, we're going to be redressing that balance to some extent by looking at one of the most deeply personal questions raised and moulded by the war, the question of Ukrainian identity. What is Ukrainian identity? Why has Russia been able to instrumentalise it to justify their invasion? What is Ukrainian national culture and what are the signifiers? And what impact will this war have on our sense of living in a post-Cold War, post-imperial world? This is Undercurrents, War in Ukraine, a special edition of Chatham House's podcast. I'm Ned Sedgwick. This episode will be a bit different, as we thought the best way of understanding the Ukrainian experience would be a discussion with two panellists, rather than a straight interview. So I'm speaking to Georgi Kasyanov, professor at the Marie Curie University in Lublin, and Arizia Lutsevich, who is a research fellow and manager of Ukraine Forum in the Russia and Eurasia programme here at Chatham House. They both identify as Ukrainian, but I wanted to understand from their perspective how Putin could use history to discredit the Ukrainian nation. My name is Zarissa Lutsevich. I'm the head of Ukraine Forum and Research Fellow at Chatham House. My name is Georgi Kasyanov. I'm head of Laboratory of International Memory Studies at Maria Curie Skladowska University in Lublin, in Poland. Georgi, in the build-up to the war, and actually throughout his entire uh, reign as uh, head of the Russian state, Putin has repeatedly questioned the legitimacy of the Ukrainian state and Ukrainian identity. What is his historical basis, no matter how flippant for doing so? I would say that it's not only Putin. It is uh, also about his entourage, and it is also about uh, Russian uh, Russia's uh, cultural and political elites and ruling class. Generally, they have a kind of common vision, shared vision on uh, on Ukraine, and this vision excludes the idea of Ukraine's existence as a sovereign state and a sovereign culture. It is not a result of uh, some kind of uh, cultural modeling. It looks like a natural feature of the outlook, uh, which uh, emerged in the middle of 19th century and survived until the beginning of 21st century. So Ukraine can uh, does not exist as an other from capital O. For them, Ukraine is just a part of Russia's historical body. And this is why they uh, have no idea, have no perception of Ukraine as a separate entity. When Ukraine emerged as a separate entity, as a sovereign state in the uh, end of 1991, exactly four days after the uh, proclamation of the Declaration of Independence, Pavel Voshanov, the press secretary of Yeltsin, just made a statement which was exactly about territories and, and lands and, uh, and the boundaries. So this is the story of, uh, the story is 32 years old, but if in terms of outlook and in terms of world vision, 
it is a story of about 150 years. Uruzi, what were the Ukrainian foundational stories? Did you grow up with a sense of being Ukrainian? I grew up in a Western Ukrainian town of Lviv, which used to be the capital of Galicia, of a Western province in Poland, and uh, before the 1939. Uh, but, you know, to be honest, the Soviet uh, Ukrainian history was uh, quite uh, erasing the uh, complicated past and conflicts that existed between Ukrainian and Russians. And for me, Ukrainian Soviet Republic and Ukraine always existed. It was never something that was either Russian or part of Russia. But uh, in the family stories, especially in Western part of Ukraine, the narratives of resistance to the Soviet as it was perceived occupation um, right at the start and after the Second World War were very strong. Uh, I would say the uh, different historical um, uh, perceptions that shaped Ukrainians from uh, western part of Ukraine and eastern part of Ukraine, where Soviet Union in my part of Ukraine was viewed as an occupation and Russian as occupiers, was not the case for people in the east, where perhaps they felt more uh, merged and uh, more owned the, the narrative of the Soviet Union and Soviet Ukraine. But resistance uh, was always there in Western Ukraine, all the way till the 60s. There were underground movements, the forest stories fighting the KGB, killing the KGB agents, and the a resistance abroad that existed in exile in Munich, in Vienna, in the United States, in Canada. I think there was always in the background that, that story, especially for people from Western Ukraine. Georgi, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in the West as well? Uh, that's a good question. I can say that I spent half of my life in the Soviet Union and the second half of my life uh, in uh, independent Ukraine. So uh, I was born in Russia uh, and uh, I just observed, it's interesting, today I observed my birth certificate and uh, uh, that time uh, parents, the nationality of parents, uh, was written there, and I read uh, Ruskaya and Ruski, and I was born in Chelyabinsk in Ural Mountains. I then uh, searched my personal uh, uh, family story, and I found that my grandfather was from Poltava region, who left uh, the Poltava region in 1904 uh, for the land, and he moved not to the west, but to the east. Uh, and uh, generally, I, th I, I would say that uh, until the end of uh, 80s, I had a uh, perfectly Russian uh, identity uh, and uh, Soviet identity. What were the events that tied you to Ukrainian identity? What were the events, what were the things that you looked at that separated you from uh, your upbringing in Russia uh, and the Soviet Union to one that was more tied to Ukraine? Well, it's not much separated. I kept links with my relatives and with Russian culture, and uh, I still believe that Russian culture is a great culture, uh, literature, music, etc., etc. Uh, I mean, the Russian culture and the, and the end of 19th century and uh, to the middle of uh, 50s of 20th century. I praised Nabokov and uh, some other Tolstoy and some other Russian. Uh, Russian writers and composers, etc., etc. But uh, well, uh, first of all, I specialized in the history of Ukraine, and I wrote three books on Ukrainian intelligentsia uh, in 1995. 
So, uh, pre-revolutionary intelligentsia, intelligentsia of 20s and 30s, and of Shistnisatniki, or 60s. So, uh, that was a great lesson about Ukrainian culture. And, uh, and then when I, uh, when I, uh, been, uh, when I, uh, uh, working in, uh, on, uh, the book on, uh, Ukrainian intelligentsia from 60s, of 60s, I met a lot of these people in 91, 93. I took interviews from them. Many people, uh, different people like Chernovil, like Lukyanenko, like Vasily Lisovi, Zuba, etc. And I was really, I was relatively young. I was about 30. And I was really impressed with these people. They were great. They were fantastic. They were people from, uh, well, capital P. So, uh, and they really impressed me. And uh, that uh, was the final point in my conversion. <laughs> so uh, I, I got, I, I became a real admirer of, uh, of Ukrainian leadership culture and Ukrainian people. Actually, I'd like to connect to just that last remark of Georgi about those people uh, uh, in the Soviet times that never gave up the dream of independent Ukraine and the heavy price they paid for it. Uh, I think this is what some something that always irritated all Russian rulers from the imperial times, from Putin's favorite Peter the Great, all the way to Putin himself, is this virus, as they see it, of Ukraine's independence. And, and there's a clear tradition that can be traced through Ukrainian culture, through Ukrainian, you know, discourse, through songs, through stories that Ukrainians tell themselves of continuity and in kind of resisting um, uh, the imperial pressure to subjugate Ukraine and this constant struggle and finding the ways within that immense pressure that was exerted both by Tsarist regime, by Stalin's regime, you know, and all the way to the collapse of the Soviet Union. And now Putin's effort to reincarnate that um, uh, history gets so much... Um, get so much uh, um, response and consolidation within Ukraine because it's there, it's in the DNA and that resistance of many of those people in the 60s, they came also from the east of Ukraine, the poets, the thinkers. Uh, Ukrainian national idea was very much present also in Donbass and in, in Kharkiv uh, and, and it had to be exterminated to a immense brutality by Stalin uh, um, uh, to ensure that Ukraine is subjugated in a more or less solid way, but it, it failed. There are no end of moments that would turn uh, Ukrainian identity against Russia. And yet until 2014, basically, and, and beyond in some cases, you saw large swathes of independent Ukrainian democratic population voting for pro-Russian party. Even after the poisoning of Yushchenko, um, you know, people look at 2014 and go, oh, you could have told from them, Putin. you could have told from, from the poisoning of Yushchenko that Putin wasn't a fan of uh, Ukraine that wouldn't do his bidding. And yet, you know, Yanukovych was voted it. Why do you think that these pro-Russian leaders could still tap into a kind of democratic uh, popularity? 
I'll I'll jump in, and uh, when I reflect uh, on uh, 2004, especially as you mentioned, this um, Orange Revolution and the uh, Ukraine's electoral uprising against the falsification of elections, I think that a lot of people in the East voted for pro-Russian parties. They They chose them because they felt they are part of the tribe. Yanukovych was supported to a large degree, not because he was pro-Russian, but because he was from Donetsk. He was somebody that people felt affinity with. He was our boy, so to speak. And look how successful from a, you know, blue-collar worker, poor guy, you know, making such an incredible career. Um, So I would say that there was more regional affiliation than pro-Russian affiliation with those people. But the, the the use of Russian language and the Russian cultural penetration inside Ukraine, and here I speak um, everything, Russian television, Russian books, Russian films, Russian theater, was quite strong in that part of, of, of Ukraine. And even in Kiev, it was quite present. So I think there was, um, you know, Ukrainians that never saw Russian as, as somebody who could commit such a vicious acts of aggression. And I think right now there's a huge pain comes from that fact that how come Russians would do these kinds of things in Mariupol, Russian-speaking town, in Severodonetsk, Russian-speaking town. So uh, before the annexation of Crimea, um, there was still this, I would say, some ambivalence, affinity, proximity between families, cultural um Penetration and Russia did everything it could to maintain that link to keep Ukraine hooked on uh, its information products, its TV series. It was a big culture, and Ukrainians also Russian-speaking cultural product was making money in Russian. That's why there was this um, co- cohabitation of two cultures that was, you know, financially profitable. But of course, all of that changed. Uh, uh, to a large degree in 2014, and right now, 98% of Ukrainians see Russia as aggressor state. They are just, you know, uh, appalled by war crimes that are being committed. And Russian pro-Russian parties have been banned by courts. Russian television station banned, and even I hear some of the parents are requesting to put a moratorium for a certain time on the Russian literature being taught at school because it's just so traumatizing. Uh, for uh, Ukrainian families that lived through the horrors of occupations and devastation by missiles. Georgi, you you grew up as a Russian speaker. Um, Do you, hearing that last point about the the banning of Russian language or the, the maybe not the banning, but the restriction of a Russian language, do you think that this is potentially an issue? Do you think it's sustainable in any way? Well, I would say that uh, there was no, was no bigger derusifier in Ukraine than Putin. He did his best to <clears throat> develop kind of abhorrence towards uh, Russian culture, to Russian language, etc. Um, at the same time, uh, Russian language, uh, for instance, in Ukraine, Russian language in Ukraine is different from Russian language in Russia. Uh, you know, you can see a Macquarie uh, uh, dictionary of Australian mm. English or, uh, let's say, South African English or Canadian English might be different from, 
from UK English. So uh, that's uh, well. I think I, Ireland is is often the when I'm trying to talk about Ukrainian identity and language. Ireland is often the, the example that comes to mind. That um, to kind of naive British audience who have this kind of uh 19th century idea that nation states need to be kind of linguistically homogenous um and ireland of course has some of the most extraordinary literature written in english but there's no mistaking that it is uh completely and utterly irish uh, there's no confusion around this point i i think that's uh well that's the russian culture from ukraine uh russians who lived in Ukraine for centuries and who developed culture, uh, this culture, they should be appropriated by Ukraine and should be should be made Ukrainian. So they should label Ukrainian writers, Ukrainian composers, etc. Uh, so um, just for the matter, just uh, it's it's simple because they lived here and they uh, they interacted with local cultures with uh, local uh, peoples, with a uh, local history, etc. So they grew up here and they are the product of, of this land. This is one point. Another point, uh, I personally never met any restrictions regarding language in Ukraine. I spent here 60 years of my life, well, with some breaks uh, with being in other countries. and. Uh, well, I grew up in Lviv. Uh, it's very cosmopolitan. Um, it's a, uh, it's nationalistic, but it's very cosmopolitan. And this this city developed as a cosmopolitan city for for centuries. So um, I think that's uh, the major problem now with this uh, Russian con- culture cancelling is that uh, it is we should understand the origins. And we should consider the origins of this. It is not because Ukrainians decided at certain point that they should cancel Russian culture. It is because at certain point, some people, some person decided to start uh, killing Ukrainians. We should understand. I don't like it. I don't like this uh, aggression in uh, in social networks against Russia, Russians in Ukraine and Russian culture. But we should understand that that it is a reaction on what has been done by by Russia, and it is also important that it is supported in Russia, regardless of all this zombification of Russian people through TV, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Regardless, just the the fact, very simple, clear fact: one country attacked another. And about pro-Russians, uh, I would pick up what Orisa said about regional identity. So adherence to Russian culture, to Russian pop culture, to Russian music, to Russian movies, etc., did not necessarily mean that these people are pro-Russian, that they are ready to become a part of Russia. If we would uh, speak about Crimea, it might be the case. There were a real, real problem with Ukrainization of Crimea because uh, well, authorities for a long time did not think about making Crimea Ukrainian. They were thinking about uh, well, renting, about the rent taking. 
In Donbass, situation more complicated. Luhanska Oblast is different from Donetska Oblast. They, they are, well, Luhansk is much more Ukrainian, I would say, even ethnically in cultural terms. Then the South, it's very complicated story. It cannot be said that they are pro-Russian or, uh, or uh, pro-Putin's. I would like to remind you that in 2014, I think it was Rozumkov Center or some of respected sociological services who made an opinion poll there in 2014. There was opinion poll and people were asked, first of all, about 90% said that they feel themselves a uh, total in Ukraine. They feel themselves as a citizens of Ukraine. And it's also interesting that in these regions, in South and the East, from 12 to 16% responded positively on the questions, would you like to be a part of other country than Ukraine? 12 to 16% in 2014. So uh, Putin attacks the most so-called pro-Russian part of, of Ukraine. So these people uh, learned what Russia is. They learned Russia not through Tolstoy, not through Dostoevsky, because, well, honestly speaking, very few people reading them there. But they learned Russia through Calibres, through Smerchi, through Uragani, through missiles, and through bombings and shellings. And this is Russia for them. So I'm sure that uh, even in these regions, a so-called pro-Russian share of population is diminishing greatly. But I would like to also point our listeners to an interesting discourse that started also in Ukraine vis-a-vis this war, is that this colonial war and assessment of Russian culture in the um, spectrum of that these imperial narratives, because, you know, it's normal in the West to look through Kipling or Flaubert or Dickens in the way their narratives supported or not supported a certain you know, political ideas, whereas in Ukraine, this never happened with this kind of lens of looking at Russian literature. And and I think this is a, you know, in a way, an interesting dimension also that Ukrainians could contribute to the global discourse and assessment about Russian culture. Uh, On one hand, because it's uh, Ukrainians to a certain degree were co-creators of the Russian imperial uh, ambition, uh, you may argue, and there's, I'm sure, Georgi could point to s- certain personalities in Ukrainian history who very much wanted to share this Ukrainian, Ru- Ukrainian-Russian imperial project, but they probably dreamt of it more in a European uh, outlook, whereas Russian political elite from Catherine to Peter the Great saw it more in a despotic, consolidated, um, uh, I-, I don't know, Eurasian space. So I think it's important to follow this new, because Ukraine is rediscovering its relations vis-a-vis Russia uh, at the degree that didn't happen before because of this strong shock, the strong shock that calls for, to ask questions. Why this is, why was this possible? And you have a, a, a quite humoristic uh, trend where some of the monuments of Pushkin are being not torn down, but renamed as monuments of Jodasan because he looks a bit like him, you know, with his barb in in one of the Ukrainian cities. So, um, I mean, I think the Ukraine Ukraine lives through unbelievable violence, unbelievable violence, right? I mean, the the Ukrainian prosecutor's office has registered over eight thousand suspicions of war crimes. 
The Ukrainian cities are destroyed. 1,000 schools destroyed. Yesterday, we saw an attack on a shopping mall. And um, it, it will change Ukraine. It will change the way Ukraine is perceived by Europe. But it will also change Russia. And, and I'm sure of it because of proximity, because of uh, leverage that also Ukraine has over Russia, which is something we you know, rarely contemplate or think about. But, but I think it will have a strong impact uh, as well. We also see a shaping of Ukrainian civic identity because we talked a lot about the importance of language. But being Ukrainian also means you know, being attached very much to the values of liberty and respect for human rights. And that comes from this you know, uh, colonial past where Ukraine was surrounded by quite predatory states from Russia to Ottoman Empire to, to even Poland. And this is where Ukrainians, regardless of language they speak and regardless the region where, where they live, they want rights to be respected. And they are very much about their community and horizontal connection. And this is what comes now so handy for Ukraine's resilience at times of war. That Ukraine is not waiting for command and control uh, from authorities. They are taking initiatives. They are mobilizing. In addition to what the state does to support the armed forces, Ukrainians are supplying armed forces. They are fundraising. They are supporting IDPs. They are carrying this home uh, front on their own hands. And over 80% of Ukrainians are now engaged in the war effort in different ways. So this uh, civil society backbone of Ukraine that is so much different from Russia, which is very top-down, centralized uh, nation, uh, actually helps Ukraine to persevere. And, and that's why it surprised so many that uh, after already more than 120 days of war, Ukraine still keeps, um, keeps at it. Ukraine is quite hopeful in its future. It's because it has this experience of being involved, engaged, and um, despair is low. The two main feelings is hope, uh, anxiety, but people don't feel desperate. And I think this is because they're involved and they feel an agency. I found that a fascinating conversation. As Arizia said, identity is so important at the moment. And I think it's important when you ask these questions of others to ask them of yourself. Why do people in the same nation as me vote the way they do? Why does it seem so strange that somebody might vote in a way that doesn't make sense to us abroad when that could be happening with your neighbour? What does it take to unify people? And what are the cultural signifiers of a country where I'm from? There aren't always easy answers, but it's clear that when a country comes under threat, nations coalesce. In understanding the Ukrainian nation better, we can understand why they pose such an existential problem for leaders of an authoritarian neighbour. Thank you for listening to this episode of Undercurrents, War in Ukraine. And thank you to Arizia Lutsevich and Georgi Kasyanov. If you want to learn more about what's going on in Ukraine, head to Chatham House's website, chathamhouse.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this issue and on what aspects you want us to cover next. You can find us on all social media at Chatham House. I've been your host, Ed Sedgwick. The producer is David Dargahi from Earshot Strategies. And thanks also to Nick Capling at Chatham House. <laughs>